to Put That Coffee Down, the Freight Sales Show for Closers, where we talk about everything freight sales, uh, whether a 3PL, Freight Tech, Enterprise Fleet, uh, or just uh, you know selling to Enterprise Fleets. We talk about freight sales and sales strategies for the freight and logistics industry. I'm Kevin Hill. I'm your host for Put That Coffee Down. And joining me today, at, again, is, is Rishi Daigle one of our Sonar Cells account, enterprise account executives. How are you doing today, Richie? Yeah, doing well, doing well. Good to be here again. Glad to be on the show and uh, looking forward to it. Excited to uh, see what we jump into today. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. We're gonna to talk a lot about the spot market. We're gonna talk about the spot market and and we're going to break the spot market down to, to seven, seven unique spot opportunities uh, that really take a different sell strategy uh, to, to execute each and every one. So we're not going to lump all, you know, what, what everyone thinks the spot market is into one uh, one lump category where people just say the spot market. There's really categories about it. And Omar Singh from Surge Transportation will be on a little bit later to uh, to talk about an article that he has out on FreightWaves.com. Which really, uh, which breaks that down to the seven unique opportunities, and it's 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 really useful to, to recognize all seven of those, because as I said uh, earlier, it, it takes a, a different sell strategy, a different pitch for each and every one of those. Ah, uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm a you know one of my favorite quotes is "God and the devil live in the details," right? And I, and I think it's easy to just say spot market, and everyone just has all these assumptions that rush to mind about what. Mm -hmm. What the spot market is, you know, what it represents, and, and so forth. And so, uh, you know, hearing that, you know, we're breaking down all the different nuances and and you know what the spot market means. I think that's uh, that's exciting stuff for sure. Yeah, and if you've ever sold, especially as as a freight broker, you're going to know you're going to recognize these. But it's probably you don't really do the details all that often. You you just kind of automatically go in with the spot market and you kind of recognize what's coming and adapt to it because uh, you you've had so much practice at it. But it's it's good to to set back as you said, God and devil are in the details and to to really look. And, and really map out those strategies, be conscious about those. Uh, once again, it's always good to take a step back and really refresh your mind uh, about the rules of the game, right? 100%, and, and you know, and what Omar uh, outlined as well, at least in, in that article he sent over, it seems like, you know, when you are trying to get in and form relationships with, you know, larger, you know, shipper companies, you know, proving yourself and how you can handle some of this volatile, uh, you know, spot freight can lead to more opportunities for more consistent freight. So it's a way to to build trust that, that can bridge the gap and lead to, you know, uh, you know, more fruitful relationships long term. It definitely can. And speaking of surge transportation and Omar, uh, let's uh, tip the band right here. Surge transportation is the fastest growing 3PL in the logistics space today. Based in Chicago and Jacksonville, they offer unrestricted access to almost all accounts, limitless territory, and a chance to be a key player in a growing company. To find out more, email jobs at surgetransportation.com. Once again, that's jobs at S-U-R-G-E transportation.com. So thanks to the Surge Transportation, and you can find them at surgetransportation.com. And they're, they're looking forward or talent all the time. And, and basically, that's what we're going to be talking about uh, today as well. Right, Richie? Absolutely. It sounds like they're uh, uh, named correctly, Surge Transportation. And it seems like they are definitely surging. Um, 
it's a good help time. myself. <laughs> it's really a good name because I mean that's what they really focus on is that that spot market and that surge in demand, right? That, that overflow yep. in demand, and we'll, we'll let Omar uh, Omar describe it himself in here in a few minutes. But uh, yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the spot market uh, and, and what it's doing right now because it's it's just been a hot spot market for. Uh, almost 12 months now, right? Uh, so, so basically, last March, last April, uh, going into last May, we had the economic shutdowns, we had the pandemic, we had a dramatic drop in in demand, right? And, and that caused rates to, to plummet. Uh, we, we know the the, the visibility uh, between owner operators and freight brokerages. And about a year ago, there was uh, all kinds of demonstrations and. A lot of talk about uh, brokers ripping off carriers because they're only offering under a dollar uh, per per mile. But you know that's a just a really when, once you get down into it, that is just a a fluctuation of of supply and demand, right? I mean, basically, when demand is going about what a federal holiday would be on a on a Tuesday or Wednesday, you're going to see a dramatic drop because you're going to be oversupplied with trucks compared to demand in freight. And now that, that tables have completely turned, you don't hear too much about uh, 3PLs ripping off carriers and owner operators anymore because rates, spot market rates are uh, in a lot of places well above $3 a mile. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in sonar every day, as you know, and that's, mm -hmm. that's my life here at Freight Waves for the most part. And, you know, when we saw the percentage of freight being turned down or, you know, rejections, you know, going up and up and up throughout 2020 all the way to present, that's just telling us that more and more freight is falling through routing guides completely. And then these companies, they have to get this, this freight moved. And so it's moving into the spot market. And with that uh, big influx of freight going into the spot market, like you said, it's supply and demand. You know, there's, there's more volume, there's more spot volume. Uh, and, and so, you know, you have limited resources to move it and that drives the price up. And, uh, that's certainly what we've seen play out. And, um, some of those fluctuations have been really volatile. There's been day over day, you know, swings and shifts in various markets that, um, have definitely created a lot of, uh, uh, anxiety and stress, I would imagine for a lot of different companies. So yeah, it's, it's a crazy time out there. Yeah, and, and Rob Bussey here um, from PWS Logistics says spot is hot, all capitalized, right? H-O-T, <laughs> plenty of exclamation points, but all caps. And it, you're right, you know, you can see it in sonar too. It is hot. Nico Brown says, hello, everyone. Hello to you, Nico, and Skybits out there. Uh, we're going to uh, put that copy down with Skybits on Wednesday at our Enterprise Fleet Summit, where we, uh, we have a, a one-day Virtual summit that's covering all things enterprise fleets, you know, large fleets. You know, a lot of that is driver hiring, driver retention, um, you know, and fleet management, you know, dedicated fleet services, private fleet management for higher fleet management, and, and kind of, uh, you know, doing another interview with Russ Elliott, the COO over at Melton Truck Lines. We're going to talk about flatbed, we're going to talk about refrigerated, we're going to talk about drive in. They're all unique markets too, right? Whether it's contract or spot. There's different modes or different different markets in of themselves. Hundred percent, yeah. And the dynamics are, you know, some one market may uh, you know be a backhaul market and a real soft market in the spot market for one mode of transportation, like you know, van, for instance. And then for refrigerated, it can be completely the opposite. And so, 
Um, certainly understanding how some of those dynamics play is, is really important, especially if you're a refrigerated carrier, right? Because then you can mm -hmm. go take some drive-in freight sometimes. So it's, it's yeah. good to kind of be monitoring both. Yeah, you, you, you certainly can. And then that's one of those things that, you know, you, you have those multimodal opportunities, especially with, with drive-in and refrigerator. We're coming up on, on produce season right now. So it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how that disrupts uh, the, the market even further, you know, creates even more tightness. Spot market becomes even, you know, heating up even further. And uh, it kind of reminds me like, you know, spot market is kind of like relief, relief pitching in the major leagues, right? Or in all baseball, right? You never know what you're going to get day to day. They are, uh, it's, it's uh, one of the most inconsistent parts of the game, really, right? And it's, it's what wins and loses if you don't have your relief pitching down, right, Richie? Yeah, 100%. And I would say that, um, you know, the one difference is that, you know, starting pitchers tend to make a lot more than release pitchers. <laughs> Whereas spot market prices tend to be a little higher than contract. But yeah, you know, to your point, um, when I was a reliever and I did some of both, you know, I, I was a starter for a few seasons, a reliever for a few. And when you're a relief pitcher, you know, your name could get called and you might have two warm up pitches and you're in, you know, and you need to be able to mentally go from everything is just chilling in the bullpen to bases loaded and nobody out. And now it's your job to figure out a solution and how to get out of a jam. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it can go from zero to 60 in, in no time. You definitely can. I mean, you can go zero to 60, uh, just, just right down the, 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 the tubes and relief pitching. It's, it's always strange. I, I, I think a dream job for, for most people would be a left-hander reliever. Come in every day, every other day, face one batter, get paid $2 million. I mean, that's like a dream job. Yeah, I think it's right. Yeah, I could see that. It'd be up there with like field goal kicking, though. You know, there's so much pressure on like one specific event. You know, you can't can't spread your risk out over a whole bunch of hitters there. Like you need to be getting these four hitters out all the time or, or your job's on the line. I, it definitely is. Your, your job's on the line. It's, it's very, I don't know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that... I, I guess it would be high pressure. So I, I guess that two million is worth it, especially if you can get people out. But a lot of times the left-handed left specialists, you know, their, their win rate or the close rate isn't all that good. Yeah, but, you know, you, you're still a pitcher. So the odds are still in your favor because all hitters are terrible, right? They're all hitting like they're getting out 70% of the time. So going back to Maddox's philosophy, like just those strikes and then increase your odds and, and let things play out. Um, but executing strikes all the time is, is where it's at, you know, and you can't be wasting pitches. You can't be get behind in counts. You can't be walking mm -hmm. people. Um, you know, that's, and it's the same thing in freight, you know, you control the controllables and put yourself in the best position for success. And if you're wasting pitches and if you're wasting time and, and you're not efficient and you're not able to get to the point and move quickly and, and throw strikes, if you will. Uh, you know, I think that's where people can get behind it and get behind the game. And you talk about getting behind the game. It's like losing out on trucks or not negotiating well is like walking, right? It's like giving up walks, right? They're always going to come back and bite you. But those missed opportunities are always going to come back and bite you at some, some, some place, right? A hundred percent, you know, and you want to, you want to build trust and, and let that trust lead to more and more organic freight. Right. And I think that if you negotiate yourself out of deals or if you aim too high or, or if you shoot too low, um, you know, if you're outside the strike zone with how you're pricing and with how you're managing 
uh, any kind of relationship, then then those relationships can go away quickly. So you want to be able to capitalize and keep things rolling and keep things moving. And um, yeah, that's that's what it's all about. It really is. And, and you know, spot rates are like ERAs or WIPs, WHIPs, right? You know, the, the lower the ERA, the, the more calmer the game, right? Greg Maddox being one of those, right? When Maddox is on the mound, there's not a lot of base runners. There's not a lot of action. It's, it's pretty calm. But those high ERAs, you know, 4.85 or, you know, into the sixes, it's going to be exciting, right? It's going to be a, a nail biter and a lot of offense, a lot of action going on. So when the spot market is high, uh, there's always always a uh, hundred things to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think regardless of what your stats are, right, you, you have to focus on on the, me the mechanics of doing your job, you know, and, and that kind of gets down to, you know, big data and tribal knowledge, right? And, and, and that's, that's a big argument in baseball right now. You have a lot of these tribal knowledge guys that have these old school baseball players, old school baseball coaches that have been around for a while. And then you have all the stat rats coming in saying launch angle and all of these stats. And this is what it's all about. And we need to do all these things. And I think it's kind of like that in freight too. You have a lot of tribal knowledge and then you have a lot of big data. And so how do you, how do you utilize the best of both and not alienate one or the other? Um, and I think there's the, the companies and the organizations that are able to do that are setting themselves up for a tremendous amount of success versus any company that is solely reliant on only tribal knowledge or solely reliant on only big data and so forth. So, And, and yeah. one of the managers that you played for, uh, he was let go from the Chicago White Sox uh, back, uh, I, I think, last November. Uh, he was officially fired. He, you know, Rick Renteria, you know, he was fired from the Cubs as well, fired from the White Sox. He, uh, you played for him, and he came in second in the voting, the Baseball Writers of America, uh, manager of the year. He came in second place. You know, he took the, the White Sox in a, in a brief uh, stinted season to the playoffs. Great, uh, great record. I forget what, 36 and 25, maybe 11 games, 10, 11 games over 500 in, in the shortened season. And he was let go. And it goes back to big data versus old school tribal knowledge. You played for him. I, I think you have uh, some great things to say about his leadership. And, you know, I'd like to, to get your point of view on that. Yeah. I mean, Straight to the point, best manager I ever played for. And I think you'd be hard to find any player that wouldn't say the same. Uh, I, I'm just an incredible human being and one of the few managers where everybody in the locker room was behind him because they knew that he was behind every person in that locker room. Uh, a true player's coach, if you will. And, you know, he's somebody that really understood the old school way of baseball. And he also had a great understanding of statistics and how the two should be merged. Um, and he gets put into the camp of tribal knowledge, but the, he really understood how to leverage data. But he was not going to sacrifice his relationships and building people as, as individuals and humans and his involvement in his players' lives just for statistics. And so, you know, he, that, I think that was what led to a lot of his success was, you know, he was going to invest himself in other people, period. And then he was going to use data to help him with building those relationships and so forth. Um, and I think ultimately data is best that way. When you start getting into big data, when you can use it to make your people better, that is where it's most powerful as opposed to trying to control or manipulate or drive things a certain direction. Um, 
you know, I've, I'm a new parent now as well. And just read, you know, a book about parenting, you know, and there's one concept called gardening versus being a carpenter. And, you know, I think Renneria was a true gardener and that he controlled the environment of the team and used data to do that and put position the whole team and success in the best possible way as controlled to trying to whittle out a specific outcome, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and control people and saying like, you have to, for example, as a hitter, you need to look at four pitches every at bat because the data says that this is how we are going to, you know, hitters that do that are going to be better. He would say, no, how can you be a better hitter? What works for you specifically? Mm -hmm. And what data can we look at is going to be most impactful for you as a person and a player? Um, yeah, and I could go on about this, and I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I do th I do see a lot of parallels with with freight, right? And using data in, in the world of logistics and freight to make people better and merging it and meshing it with that tribal knowledge that exists, that I, I think there's a, there's a lot there that can be kind of, unpacked and, and better understood. I, I, I do too. Russ Goddard here says, greetings from Orion Logistics. Charles Maiden, good afternoon to all. And Dooner says, look out, someone's a, someone is in your house. So I, I don't know if someone walked by or, or, or not, um, but <laughs> there's somebody else in your house, Richie. So, Possible, so yeah. <laughs> make sure, make, make sure you, you, you look out for that. So uh, it, it kind of goes, uh, you know, the tribal knowledge uh, and, and really the, like, like the data is, is weird because you sent me that article on Rick Renteria Friday night and I was sitting there, hadn't watched Moneyball in a long time and it was on TV and I was just watching it. Uh, so it's a, it's a strange coincidence, right? I'm, I'm watching Moneyball. But there, in business, I, this is really, really applicable for business, right? Because a lot of times you have to do things in sales, right? In marketing, you have to do things that you can't measure, right? You, you got to take those risks, go out, try new things that, that you can't measure with data. Right, but you you just know that it's the right thing to do, right? It's the, the best thing that you can do, but you can't really measure it. And and doing those things are immeasurable. And and a lot of times it's marketing or doing sales for you know let's say four or five different methods, and you can't really like like if you throw out a white paper and the leads come in downloading that white paper. Well, you can't look at that in a vacuum and say, well, this is it's returning twelve percent demos, right? It, it's if you're using different channels, that there's that combination effect, right? That, that combination, you know, the, the whole is much uh, more valuable than the sum of the parts. And a lot of times in business and baseball and, and whatever you, else you do in life, it's that that, that whole, right? Not, not necessarily the, the, the parts individually, but the sum of the parts is often much more, va more valuable than any one method. 100%, you know, and it's what are people's motivations too? You know, data is a really big, powerful tool. Uh, and, you know, science, huge, big, powerful tool. But what are your motivations for, for wielding and using that tool? Are you trying to manipulate and change an already, you know, difficult work environment? Or are you trying to grow and, you know, empower and better your, and your employees and invest in their lives and say, here are some tools that can help you do your job better. And, and so it, I think it really comes down to motivations and how different entities are, are leveraging those tools and what their end goals are. Yeah. You have to, you have to leverage the data, but there's, I, I can, there's a lot of things that are, yeah, it's just hard to measure, but you know, it's the right thing. <laughs> and, and baseball is definitely one of those. Uh, Eric Serta, I like you, he, he worded it, spreading out the risk. I like that too. I yep. like that too. Spreading out the risk is uh, is always a good thing. 100%.
hundred percent. Yeah. You have to, I mean, if, if you have so much that's held up into one, yeah, if you're a left-handed specialist, you better be on your game, right? It's, it's easy in one sense, right? You don't do a lot of work, but the work you have to do is high risk. So, um, yeah, it's a lot, a lot better to be a starter in that regard. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess my dad's watching. He says no new calves today. Uh, it's completely utterly off topic, which he does quite often, right? No new calves. So he's probably out of the ranch. But uh, yeah, so but we have Omar here ready to go on right now. So so let's rope him in and start talking uh, a little bit about the spot market and the seven categories of spot freight. Omar, how are you doing today? Hey, guys. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Doing great. How are you all? Good. We're doing great, too. I mean, we always like talking about the, the spot market, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. So, uh, Omar, why don't you introduce yourself and, and Surge Transportation to our audience? So, I'm Omar, the founder of Surge Transportation. Um, we pretty much, uh, Surge Transportation specializes in or really focuses on going after a backup model where we can be most valuable to shippers because as brokers, you know, we believe that primaries should haul most of the freight um, and that, you know, when they're not available, that's when a broker can be kind of most valuable, at least in large and complicated supply chains. Um, so that's that's really our model and uh, the sort of types of customers that we work with. Um, but I've been doing this, you know, my whole life. I was a driver. I've been on a couple times now uh, to pay for college and then drove over the road, had a medium sized trucking company um, and then got into brokerage in 2011. Um, and took Surge as an independent company in 2016. So things have been going well. It's been a, been a fun ride. Yeah, you know, I always say niches have the riches, and uh, and and how you position Surge is, I, I find it fascinating. I really do. I, I like focusing in on on specific markets or anything that that you can dedicate all your time and resources and do really well instead of trying to do everything okay, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's worked out for us even within sort of that narrow focus. This is what kind of the topic of the article. I found kind of seven like layers of partnership even within a narrow focus, um, and that is just sort of yeah becoming experts at those seven um, rather than yeah. I mean, we don't do multimodal, we don't do intermodal, we don't do ocean air. You know, it's just focusing mm -hmm. on domestic over the road truckload in some form of backup capacity that shippers need, you know, from time to time, but it's throughout the year. I mean, you just have to sort of navigate that with your customers or clients, as you said last week, uh, throughout the year. So, yeah, I was uh, reading over the article and, and the, the thing I couldn't help but uh, think about as I read was this is a company that knows their identity. They know exactly who they are. They have a very clear goal. They have uh, they, they know their place in the marketplace, and, and it, it seems like you are communicating that clearly to your shippers and, and to your partners. Um, I thought you might have some comments on, on other ways that you have found to be successful in, in building trust with your, your shipper client base. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for the feedback. But um, yeah, I think you know all of this kind of as I was talking about primary business, backup, seasonal, temporary, strategic spot, transactional spot, and expedites. I think all of it is, it's, it's kind of a buildup, right? And you build momentum. And we always say with our customers or clients, crawl, walk, run, 
right? We're going to get in the door and, and usually depending on what the customer's needs are, you know, crawl, walk, run can be, it can be 90 days. It, it can be three years, right? Depending on how long it takes to build that trust, how long it takes to build familiarity with their network that, uh, you know, cause I have so many stories about same customer, different sites, different rules, right? So if you, if you go in and say, well, it's this customer, so we must play by these rules, you know, that's not the case. Um, so it takes a really long time, I think, to build up enough familiarity and a complicated supply chain to be valuable in different locations, but also, you know, with different needs, if it's temporary or seasonal or primary. But, you know, to, to really build long-term trust and long-term relationships, I think that you kind of, as we were saying, have to be diversified and you have to be able to do lots of things and, and change on the fly when they need you. Um, but, you know, of course, and always, you know, deliver on service. I mean, it's one thing to say that you can do it. It's another thing to actually do it. Um, it takes a long time to build trust. So yeah, the, the, the execution is always the, uh, the, the, the thing, isn't it? Right. Uh, you, you can say a lot, but you have to execute what you can't and, and to do another baseball analogy, right? Yeah, you have to execute the pitches. You have to execute the location and change the speeds. But let's dive into uh, the, the seven categories. We've been teasing it here for uh, the last 30 minutes. Uh, so let's uh, jump into the first one and, and kind of define these and, and talk about them. So number one is primary level. What do you mean by, by primary level, Omar? So primary is just, I guess, you know, widely used as the primary provider on the lane, right? And and for us as, as brokers, it's it's really gaining entry into the network. Most of the customers we work with, we have to gain entry as part of an RFP. And as part of that bid, you have to win, right? So you have to just be the primary. Um, you know, the reality is that with brokers, I think a lot of times when we win primary, it's kind of taking what we would call a losing lane to get in and start to work on the other levels of partnership where we can, you know, make it a sort of profitable account, profitable relationship. But I will say, you know, the reality is brokers shouldn't be primaries. We can't, we can't do it for less than cost. And the cost is what the truck, you know, needs to operate. And so to go in and say that somehow I can do it for less than a motor carrier, it just doesn't make sense, you know, because I still have to hire the motor carrier. So how, how can I do it for less? Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's something that, you know, we have to do, um, and, and it's a part of our business, um, to do some of the primary work and, and just gain entry and start building that relationship and that trust. So how do yeah, you, so how do you build trust in those situations? Like if, if it's evident to everybody, you know, that, uh, you know, you're, you don't have the assets and that you have to put your margin on top, like how, how do you position yourself to say like, you know, this is why you should do that. Here's the value that we can provide. Here's why it makes sense. Here's what we can do for you. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear where you go from that. From that well, I think, I think, yeah, I think that overall, um, you know, if, if it's part of a larger conversation and, and so we don't um, really participate in a bid event where we don't meet with the customer under COVID, that's been more difficult, right? But where we meet in person and sort of go over these seven levels and what we'd be looking to do over whatever period of time it takes to begin to execute. And so um, I think that we can establish that that trust and that expectation going in and just getting that primary is like the crawl, right? All right, let's start to crawl, see what you can do. And of course, if the execution is there and the communication is there, um, then you know other doors kind of start to open 
and also with kind of the larger shippers, there's always these um, spot opportunities that come up where sometimes you can kind of hedge the primary against the spot and say, we'll lose here and, you know, we can probably make it up here and, and get the relationship started, you know. Sure. So it's yeah, almost like you're, or go ahead, Kevin. I was, no, no, good. Go I, was, uh, I, I just wanted to follow up on that real quick and just say, you know, it, it, if I hear you correctly, it's you are, you're being transparent, right? And you're using that transparency to say, you know, here's how we can set expectations appropriately and correctly. And, and that is a, a way of, you know, starting that crawling with, with forming trust. And that might say, you know what, we're really comfortable with this company because we know where we stand, our expectations are being met. And that can be just as important as, um, you know, winning on price and so forth from a shipper standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the, yeah, the biggest selling points is transparency, um, not just in expectations. We also do transparency in, in pricing models. You know, uh, I mean, we, this, we can do complicated pricing models to do simple, but um, a lot of times we share information with customers. Um, so they always know exactly what they're getting um, because this it's a hard industry, right? It's complicated. And as hard as we try to not let things go wrong or something happens, you know, I think that the transparency and the communication, um, you know, they sort of make things more tolerable when, you know, when it's hard, if a driver's delayed, then it's understandable if you tell them that the driver was delayed at, at loading, but it's not understandable if, you know, he's still late, but if they don't know why, then, you know, then it's a problem. It's a different kind of problem than if they know ahead of time that they were just held at the shipper, they were on time, right? But if there's no communication, no transparency, then it just makes it so much harder than it needs to be. It really does. And, and you talk about transparency. I, I think number two, the, the number two category that you have listed here is I, I think of a very transparent way for freight brokers just to operate. And that's the backup level where you're you're down in the routing ground, second, third, fourth. And you know, you're gonna charge a premium uh, for for freight that's moved down down the routing routing ride because basically capacity is probably going to be much harder to fulfill if it's if you're third third or fourth on the routing ride it's, it means that capacity is an issue and you're going to charge a premium to, to come through with that and on especially red environments like this and market environments like like what we've seen over the last few months is that. Uh, that it's when it's most profitable and makes more, much more sense for uh, a 3PL or a freight brokerage to, to move that freight. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's not just capacity being tight, but it's also, you know, appointments being tight. It's normally short lead time, right? So in short lead time, I say, you know, it's the pressure cooker because you get the tender that's either given back by the primary who something changed and they weren't able to take it all of a sudden. Um, or just there's a, there's a short lead time order, right? That the primary, normally they have a window of 48 hours or so where they have to accept a, a, a tender. And so just end customers out of product all of a sudden. And so these orders drop and they're short lead time. Um, and within that, there are no available appointments, you know, where you have to have second and third shift that's oh, yeah. working late to, to build the loads overnight. Things are getting pushed and pulled and, you know, in all directions or, you know, it's one thing for a buyer to say they want an extra truckload of whatever. It's another thing for then the shipper to have the product. So then, you know, <laughs> lots of things can go wrong in backup. And, and you're right. So we do charge a little bit more. But, you know, to use a baseball term, we still have to be in the ballpark. So, mm -hmm. you know, we sit down with our customers and we will negotiate 
sort of what are reasonable backup rates to be put lower down the routing guide. And there are different strategies for that that work for different people. But yeah, we have to be transparent to say, this is the normal cost. You throw some short lead time into it and you know it's going to be a little bit more, but we are capable of getting it done, right? And, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that premium on on sorting out appointment times is is well deserved, really. I, I there's so many times in my career that, uh, you know, you're just moving the load around and, you know, your shipper or whoever the customer is wants it right now. But, you know, to get that truck loaded and sometimes getting it unloaded. Right. And, and the buyer is the, the, the problem or the cosignee is the problem because that they need it right now, but you can't get an appointment. And then it turns into yeah, it turns into a lot of work. Organ or yeah. scheduling all that. Yeah, yeah. I always say, let me see if I can get this right. But you have you have the seller, right? Who is who is the company um, mm -hmm. selling the product? Then you have the shipper, which is the shipping location that they might not have capacity to to handle an extra load. And then you have the carrier, and then you have the broker, and then you have the receiver, who's the physical warehouse receiving, and then you have the buyer, who's you know asking for the product. And yeah, the buyer always wants it, and then the receiver says. We ain't got appointments, you know, we don't have to pass it. You can only take in so much product on a given day. And um, it can just, it can be a lot of job security, I guess, to call it, <laughs> to navigate those things. So, yeah. So when you're having those conversations and you're having to, and this is probably a question that will come up on, on the next levels as well. You know, you're saying we need to charge more. What specifically are you showing to justify the the increase in rate that you're uh, that you're bringing to the shippers, and how do you maintain that relationship of of trust when you're also requiring more money to be spent on their behalf? Well, you know, it's it's a it's a hard conversation I think to have, but I would say you know in my experience, most of the customers who we work with have very seasoned you know transportation teams, and 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 they understand that moving things in short lead time or, you know, whatever kind of pressures there under the different levels of partnership. Um, they have other providers, they, they compare, right? They can compare to prior years, even though that's not always accurate because markets can change so much in a year. But I think they, I think they understand. And then a lot of times also they'll compare to what they're seeing in the spot market. Um, and sometimes they even compared to what they're seeing on different, um, you know, indices that that they use benchmarking tools. So, you know, if it's DAT or Chainalytics or Sonar or, you know, most shippers are pretty um, data driven um, where they're, they're checking the benchmarking tools. You know, BlueJay has uh, BlueDex. Um, so so I, I think we have those conversations like you guys were saying earlier, and there's a lot of data around them. Um, so you got, you know, your kind of average, your low and your high rates. And, and we have conversations about that and conversations about what they're seeing from their motor carriers. But I think, again, so long as you're transparent, you're talking about it, then you should be able to, you know, come to some meeting of the minds and a strategy that works so that it's strategic for both parties. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's transparency. I mean, it's all about transparency and sharing information and, and partnering to, to where everyone has uh, more of a symmetry or symmetric uh, views of the market. The, the third one coming up here is seasonal level, and we're heading into a lot of seasons right now. Heading into produce season, we're heading into construction season, we're heading into 
uh, really manufacturing and, and the summer holidays, food and beverage, a lot of, a lot of good seasonal surges are, are coming up right now. So uh, how does that, uh, what's your strategy really on, on, on that surging type of time frame that, that you've named your company out of after? Yeah, well, I think, well, I think, I mean, I think it's, it's there, right? So, I mean, a little bit of the backstory is, you know, I had the trucking company from 2003 to 2010. And in many ways, you know, we just sold on price and tried to figure out how to go in and, and win primary business and keep the assets going. And of course, it was the recession and, you know, diesel was $5 a gallon and all of these models that used to work kind of didn't work anymore. And, and I went out of business and it was, it was a hard fall and it, it was difficult. Right. And so, mm -hmm. but I had some existing customers that I was able to sort of maintain those relationships and, and move over into brokerage um, and try to sell on value instead of sell on price. Right. And so mm -hmm. seasonal was some of what kind of in that first year where I had to rebuild business and rebuild volume and just kind of rebuild everything. That's why even in the article, I just talk about, you know, sometimes just you want to be able to have a living, um, but to go after and say, yeah, if it's, uh, you know, beverage shippers, it's 100 days of, of summer. You know, if it's produce shippers, it's usually 60 to 70 days, you know, in whatever that growing area is. And that's coming up and those hit each other at the same time where you get the summer beverages along with the summer produce. Um, so it gets it gets kind of dicey. But um, but again, I think if you just have the conversations and say this is you know what we're anticipating during these hundred days or during these seventy days during these sixty days, um, and the customers you know know that it's true and accurate, I think it works. It works when you set up the relationship for that. Um, and again, motor carriers different model. I don't think brokers should try to be motor carriers because they're not. Um, and I think. Our clients appreciate it when we're able to just, you know, work with the reality of what's going on and have conversations around it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And, and kind of going into the, the seasonal levels are kind of, I, I would call those macro trends, right? Those are for the country, for major industries where they have their, their busy seasons and then temporary level is more a micro, right? It's, it's business specific. So it could be a new customer. It could be um, uh, any kinds, you know, a, a surge in demand for that customer itself, right? Yeah, I, was, I say in the article that temporary, I mean, you have to kind of, as you build up the trust in the relationship, be there for all of these. And I say the biggest difference between seasonal and temporary is that seasonal is expected right? You know when that season is going to hit and generally how long it's going to hit for. And then temporary, I say, are unexpected. Um, and by unexpected, we talk about weather events, hurricanes, tornadoes, you know, earthquakes, bridge collapse, uh, Suez Canal, right? Um, these yeah. things that are just unanticipated where a customer comes in and says, client comes in and says, you know, I need, I need help for 30 days. I need help for 14 days. I need help for seven. Or maybe I just need help um, on a promotion and, you know, we have an extra 50 loads, but something that falls outside of the scope of what primaries normally do, but also it's just unexpected. And so you have to be there to be able to respond to whatever's happening. And again, it's not a huge amount of or percentage of the overall business that I think somebody does with their customers, but it's, it's a really valuable part of the business. Um, you know, to just be there at, at those times when just unexpected things are happening and they need 
They need assistance. They need somebody to rely on. So, one, you know, Kevin and I were just talking about, you know, the, the merge of big data and tribal knowledge. And, um, you know, you, obviously you have to have a good finger on the pulse of the market in order to meet and exceed the expectations that you're setting for, for your clients. Um, you know, you, you have to be able to, to cover that freight and provide that service at the rates that you've provided in a way that is, you know, hitting those expectations and continuing to propel your company forward. Um, I'm curious how you are leveraging both tribal knowledge and data to keep a finger on the pulse and to understand what's happening with capacity and, and the market in order to provide that service, especially when you're looking at, you know, these seasonal periods and these temporary uh, periods where the market may be more volatile than other times. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's been harder with COVID because like you talk about, you know, kind of tribal knowledge, um, you know, on the kind of carrier sales floor, a lot of what you're, you're asking about what's happening in the marketplace, you know, we're yelling it back and forth to tell each other, you know, kind of what's going on under COVID. You know, we have people working in the Chicago office. We don't really have very many people working um, in the Jacksonville office, but um, it's been harder to share information. You know, I mean, we're using chat, we're going to move to Slack, but, you know, it's, it's harder to share that information. And I think we do a pretty good job of sharing it as a team and most companies do. Um, it's a little different how quickly things can change than if you're using a benchmarking tool, because most benchmarking tools are delayed a certain amount, call it two weeks, right? Even though they call them real-time rates by the time they really gather that data and say, what's happening? I mean, things, things have already changed. Um, so I think just sharing as a team is part of it and sharing with customers, um, and historical data is valuable. It helps, but you know, I mean, we see what happened last year, what's going on this year. It's not always the most reliable thing to say that just because last July the market did this, it means that this July it's going to be the same. Um, but I would say just for me being involved in the operation, being involved in the rates, still seeing what's going on from a day-to-day -day basis, I think you kind of feel it and you have to share it with your team, you know? Yeah, there's so. something though that we talked about last week, Omar, uh, when we had a phone call was about, you know, the challenges of, of working from home as a 3PL or freight brokerage, uh, because we're talking about tribal knowledge uh, all show here. And there's a lot of tribal knowledge that is shared on a brokerage floor. And you went into like rates, you know? What, what should I charge for, for, for this rate? And uh, you lean on some people who are experienced uh, around the office. Sometimes it's good advice. Sometimes it's not so good advice, but everyone kind of <laughs> learns together on, on the floor, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of learning that goes on on the floor. So it's, it's, been, it's, it's been harder, you know, with COVID. And it's been harder to hire and train, of course. Um, you know, we've had a couple COVID outbreaks in the office and then everyone kind of grabs their stations, works from home for a couple of weeks, comes back, you get another six good weeks and then people run away again and then come back. But, um, we're getting through, but it's, yeah, it's a lot of sharing across the teams. So, yeah, that, that sort of thing is huge, you know, and, and, you know, the ability to learn, you know, when I joined freight waves, uh, that was one of the key components. We were in the office and I was pestering people all over the place. I was walking over to, to Kevin's desk or Henry's desk and saying, you know, tell me this, I have a question, I wanna know. And so um, when you're all in one room, I, I, I've, yeah, I've been a part of that sort of learning process and it's a lot easier than uh, 
you know, Slack or email or phone calls, you know, it's just the, the personality or something about being in the same room that, that just makes things better. I don't know if it's like I'm, you know, pulling in information via osmosis or what, but it just seems to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And people, I'll be honest with you. I think some of the people that go in and want to work from home, they don't uh, always want to admit it, but you know, I walk the floor and I see them going into the other office and they're talking to their coworkers or they're all, they're there sharing information and they're there learning, you know, as much as they say, I want to be at home. Like I see you learning from your teammates in their office, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I caught you. So yeah. Yeah. yeah but, the, the next two categories here, we have, strategic spot and transactional spot. So those are, are two interesting categories that, that you've broken out. And I'd like, uh, in your own words, so to kind of explain what you mean by, by each and how those are divided into two separate categories, which I, I'm sure has two different selling strategies for, for, for both. Yeah, I think, so for us as a company, strategic spot is, is new and it's sort of, um, you know, very similar model to having backup rates on file or you know published active backup rates but it's it's the introduction for us and for most TMSs of, of APIs and real-time rating capabilities and uh, some people call it dynamic pricing some people call it real-time pricing but also you know you have to be able to source real-time capacity it's one thing to provide a price it's another thing you know to execute. But uh, I think the real difference here is that, you know, um, and I wrote a different paper on it, but it's um, that shippers are now sending a certain percentage of their volume into an API real-time environment on purpose. So I kind of say like the difference between seasonal and temporary is that one is expected and the other is unexpected and strategic spot versus uh, transactional spot one is intentional, is by design, and the other is by mistake. So with strategic spot, shippers are saying ahead of time, okay, I want to take this sec segment of my business and put it in the API real time with my curated community of strategic providers. So rather than having, you know, 100 people bid on it in transactional spot, I'm going to work with these 10 carriers or three carriers or, you know, whatever it is, 30. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not the same amount that are in the normal spot. And it's also being able to work KPIs, you know, into the award calculation where in normal spot, you can't. Normally, it's done on an annual basis uh, or monthly basis, but not on the level of the load where they're giving weightage to performance over rates. Um and so that community is completely intentional. The people who are participating in it are invested in, you know, the TMS integrations. There's some costs there, but it's a it's a smaller community of providers, and it's an intentional space where they're saying, you know, we have some customers who say, well, my low volume lanes, I want them to go to API because brokers do better in low volume because motor carriers need consistency. Um, but we have other customers who say, well, my really high volume lanes, I want my more strategic providers to be there because they're more volatile and I just, I, I need, you know, my, kind of my better people there. Um, but the thing that I, I guess, like I said, is the most exciting about it is that it's a, it's a designed community, it's designed freight, it's designed, you know, um, service providers that, you know, they're just able to push uh, more volume there where the relationship is essentially more strategic than working in the smorgasbord of, of what ends up happening on 
what I call transactional spot versus strategic spot. So have you have you noticed that the the dynamics on those lanes that are going into strategic spot are are there any commonalities across various shipper companies that are that are you know going with strategic spot for moving freight, um, or is it just different for for you know various companies and how they're going about it? I I, I think it's different for various companies. Um, I think obviously. So I would say there's there's a few models that we're working with, but multiple companies doing one of the three, which, like I said, one is low volume where they say kind of brokers play in low volume because motor carriers need high volume consistency, drop trailers. Um, so we're just going to send it to this kind of select group of providers who have essentially higher performance. Um, and then the other ones are, like we said, high volume outbound origins where they are in need of sort of more strategic players because those lanes are more volatile. And then the other one I would say isn't really origin domicile specific, um, but just a certain percentage of their freight where they're saying rather than like intentionally, right, bid out 100% of your forecasted volume, which is the traditional thing to do, and then secure capacity for 100% of your forecast, they're saying, with, we're going to bid out 70% of our forecasts and we're going to play the market with 30. Um, and, or, you know, and some is 90, 10, 80, 20, right? Um, but, and so when that market is down, you're paying less than the annually awarded rate. But when that market is up, you're securing capacity faster, which is at the end of the day, you know, they need a truck. Um, but playing that market is something that they're they're doing on purpose, um, and they know that when it's down, they're going to pay less. In a declining market, anytime you award the rate, right, the next month it's you're overpaying. But in an inclining market, you got you want the trucks, you need capacity because you have to service your end customer. So, are you finding uh, Omar? Are you finding shippers are, are more, um, I, I guess, more open, but but more uh, sophisticated when it comes to deploying the spot market? Have you, have you seen? Uh, a growing interest from shippers to, to, to become more sophisticated and, and and have better buying data uh, when it comes to to deploying the volatility in, the, in the, the the spot market. I I think so. I mean, over the over yeah the last several years, uh, I think the large TMSs are providing their own uh, index to customers to their you know shipper customers about you know what market rate should be. I see a lot of customers using DAT. A lot are using Chainalytics um, and CAS. I mean, I think they're really armed with information um, and it creates, I, I guess, better, more transparent, you know, communication and relationship strategies with each other. But I, I think absolutely. And then I always tell, you know, shippers that there is one thing for a benchmarking tool to say it should cost this, right? And, but the best I think benchmarking tool for any shipper is is their own feedback from an RFP because their carriers are telling them this is what it costs to move this lane. And a lot of times those carriers know the lanes better than, of course, a benchmarking tool, right? Because maybe the site has limited shipping hours. So it's harder to work out of that site. Or maybe the site's more, you know, just um I don't know, their capacity is different, yeah. or maybe the, the end customer on the lane is, you know, very strict appointments and they only take refrigerated on, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Mm -hmm. And so if you miss an appointment, you, you know, you have to wait six days to unload. Um, so their carriers know that, 
um, more than going to a benchmarking tool will tell you. So I always say, go to your own routing guide, go, go to your guide and maybe let's have a conversation around the rates that you're seeing on the guide that makes sense for a strategy that, that maybe, you know, we can create there without giving up too much sauce. But a lot of times we go, we go to their guide. Yeah, yeah. And, and Richie, I, I'm going to ask you the same question. I mean, you're talking to a lot of shippers, too. I mean, are, are you seeing uh, more interest in sophisticated models to play the spot market? Certainly. And I think you know, the, the shippers that I've talked with are definitely leveraging Sonar to to understand not only what a rate is, but what are the conditions? You know, how, how attractive are these lanes to carriers? How volatile are these lanes? And then forecasting out that information over certain periods of time to be more thoughtful around how they're making those decisions on what to send to the strategic spot market versus what to put into contract. Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, with with so many shippers, you know, leveraging Sonar just over the last six months, we've had a huge influx, um, and a lot of large organizations are starting to utilize um, forecasting models uh, to be more strategic and thoughtful around how they're setting up their their routing guides and as well as their whole networks. Have you experienced any of that or has that hit you yet? You know, are you starting to see, you know, references to sonar and volatility and and, and lane scores and uh, whether it's API predictive rates or, or just coming up in conversations that you're having? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not just our shippers sharing it with us, you know, we're sharing it with shippers. I mean, I use sonar as uh, on our real-time rating tool, and I found it to be, you know, incredibly valuable, especially in the past year. That you know, when the market started shooting up last, you know, May, really, I mean, we had the the panic buying in, in March, and then the dip, and then things started going back up. But um, we were using Sonar a lot, both in conversations with shippers and in the weightage of our pricing tools. So we use like it's historical rates, market rates, and predictive rates, and I find the predictive rates to be the most valuable when it's based on, you know, tender volumes and tender rejection rates, because, you know, that's saying we have information about what's happening next week, whereas all of the other tools have information about what happened last week, right? And so it's a it's a big difference and it's valuable when you know the right calculation is done and say, well, what happens when the national tender reject rate is five percent? What happens to rates when it's ten percent? What happens to rates when it's fifteen? What happens when it's twenty and thirty? Right? Um, all of the benchmarking tools that use historical data are, are not capturing that, and so there's there's a big lag. Um, but yeah, shippers love Sonar. I think that it's it's incredibly valuable because of that because it takes the TMS information into account um, okay. and the the tender volume information into account rather than the historical and with things changing the way that they did last year, um, it was incredibly valuable. And we, yeah, and we have it integrated in our APIs, and you know we can do different weightage on different tools. So, do you uh, feel like it's helped with building building trust? Uh, you know, when you're when you're referencing that with those conversations. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we would not just reference the information, but share it with them and and show the tender rejection rates and share slides and just talk about, you know, what's, what's really happening, you know, and, and are we not good at predicting rates or maybe are, you know, all of the models broken, you know, under, under COVID, maybe it's that, you know? Um, so we share the information 
all the time with yeah we even have a rolling dashboard on the tv large screen tvs and in the office about you know different things and the sonar tender volume slides are updated you know daily on them just to kind of let the whole team know where the nation is on uh that's, that's yeah that's fantastic omar we always love hearing that um and but we're running out of time right now how does our audience reach out and learn more about surge transportation well i would say i'm i'm accessible right if it's um anything at all info at surge transportation will get routed to the right person our emails are first name dot last name if it's about employment there's jobs at surgetransportation.com we have a career page uh, you know, we're hiring in all of our offices and some remote people try to really build a team. We're experiencing rapid growth. So, you know, we'd love to see some potential candidates. But, um, you know, if you're a shipper, you know, info, first name, by last name, you know, we're easy to find. So Great. Great. Again, thanks so much for your time today. And we'll have you on the, the program again very soon. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Nice to meet you. And uh, we'll, we'll talk next time. Perfect. Thanks, Omar. Thanks, Omar. Thank you. So interesting uh, spot market discussion there, right, Richie? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and again, you know, I said this last week, and I feel like I could say the same thing again this week. Like we could talk about this for another hour, right? I, I mean, there's just so much that goes into the spot market, and uh, so much volatility, and how do you navigate and manage it? Yeah, great stuff. It is great stuff. It, it is great stuff. Uh, Wednesday, the Enterprise Fleet Summit is going to be interesting stuff uh, again. Uh, we have our keynote is Andrew Leto from Emerge. But the reason why Andrew is talking about Enterprise Fleets is he became a, a pretty big investor in Roadrunner over the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, they, they raised about $50 million, and Andrew Leto was the the, the primary or the lead investor in, in that round. So he's an investor and a board member of Roadrunner now and our very own George Abernathy, president here at uh, Freight Waves. It will be interviewing him at the, the keynote and, and kind of what he sees, why he's so optimistic about LTL. And uh, he was the founder of Global Trans as well. So those uh, large kind of Global Trans comes from that LTL shipping. That's how it was founded how it was fueled. Um, we also have a really great segments um, about dedicated fleets with with Ryder. We have uh, Loves is speaking here, you know, our water bottle here, Loves, uh, about private fleet management. Uh, great sessions. You can go to live.freightwaves.com to, to learn more uh, about that and to register for free. All our virtual summits are free. This one's no exception. And we will be live on Wednesday starting at 9 a.m. It will run the full day, what the truck. Uh, I think they have three or four guests lined up and booked up for that to put that coffee down. Great quarter guys and a bunch of great sessions and that'll wrap it for this episode of Put That Coffee Down.